The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Getting ready for your close-up, Castle? No, just trying to discern the hidden meaning. Is it about the rise of technology, rampant narcissism, or someone just having a lot of extra TVs? Well, sometimes you don't need to know what it's about. Sometimes it's just art. Why, well, Dr. Beckett, how very existential of you. Let me guess, art theory in college? No, the closest I ever came to taking an art class was posing for one as a model. Wait, posing in? Not a stitch. It's called the fist of capitalism, the searing indictment of our consumer-driven culture. Somebody stole the fist of capitalism? Anyone check up the ass of socialism? Good morning, London. It is Thursday, January 26, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to the show today, where once again, 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to join in on our conversation today, or you can write us at feedback at justbrightmedia.org, where we will listen to all of your comments and read all your comments eventually when we get around to them on the show as well. Today on the show, we're going to be talking, uh, the major subject, I guess, will be the Caterpillar situation and what's happening around that. Near the end of the show, we're going to be talking about Dual citizenship, is that a legitimate concept? Is it something you would agree with or disagree with? And uh, with that in mind, we do have a couple of announcements to make, don't we? One of them being, we're no longer broadcasting out of the University of Western Ontario. Isn't that right, Robert? Even though the office looks identically it's exactly the same. The same. <laughs> <laughs> it's now the Western University Canada. Western University Canada. Yeah. So, love it or leave it, yep. that's what it's called from now on. That's right. And we had one other... That's right. Um, last week, we talked about uh, Fred Rogers, as an aside, yes. uh, having a military background. And if you can't do your due diligence, then you have to do your due apologies. <laughs> and apparently, that was a bogus urban legend. So, when it came to Fred Rogers, he was exactly as he appeared. Yeah, we, we had that sent to us by one of our listeners. It turns out he's no Navy SEAL, just the seal of good housekeeping, apparently. <laughs> but I wanted to believe that my neighborhood was safe. Wouldn't, have that, <laughs> wouldn't that have been a great story? <laughs> what, what was it about that story that was so appealing, you know? Yeah. I was almost disappointed when I heard it wasn't true. Uh-huh. Same here. Maybe that's, a, that's a show, another show we can do. But for today, did you hear the news? Caterpillar has announced its profits this morning. Up 78%. And the company spokesman of Caterpillar said the company is planning significant investments as it continues to focus on its strategy, although it hasn't really told anyone what that strategy is. And we've heard union reps, Ken Luenza was on the air this morning talking about, you have to share your success with your employees. Caterpillar can't have it all. You have to return these profits to the community from where they came. And, you know just amazing what they're, what they're saying and what they're thinking about profit. You know what it makes me think of? What's that? It makes me think these union guys see some head of Caterpillar diving into his money bin. And, and, and Scrooge the, McDuck. Scrooge yeah. McDuck, yeah. you know, he has absolutely no idea 
what a business is comprised of, what profits do, how profits are circulated, has no idea about shareholders. Imagine all of the shareholders benefiting from that profit. But all he sees is his own personal agenda, his envy, his greed. Well, that's actually my theme today. I, I, I'm going to. I, I don't have. I don't share a great support for what the unions are doing here. I share. I can understand the discomfort and pain that people would be experiencing to have a job at one rate of pay and suddenly to have it gone. Well, sure, yeah. Um, I wouldn't like to be in that situation. No, I've been in that situation more than once in my life. So, you know, it's nothing new, but that's the way the world works. And you know, people people think, well, that's evil capitalism. Well, you know. It comes down to, you know, like, like they said in that opening clip from Castle, the fist of capitalism versus the ass of socialism. <laughs> and London Mayor Joe Fontana at this past weekend's socialist organized park occupation apparently wanted Stephen Harper to, quote, get his ass down here to London, in the mayor's own words. Though from everything I was hearing, it sounded like Harper's ass was already in town. <laughs> and this past, I think, Saturday saw London's, what I would call, our second occupation since the last occupation, which was just about a month or two ago. Right? Apparently now they're holding up a delivery of a, a diesel locomotive in Ingersoll. It's amazing. But let's start with the facts as we understand them, at least what we know so far. I thought that would be a good place to start. So here's the, the facts as I understand them. Number one, and this is interesting, Mayor Joe Fontana not so long ago told Londoners that Electromotive... Um, now, I might be using the word Electromotive and... Um, you know, Caterpillar interchangeably. I mean the same company, of course. Um, one is owned by the other. And he told Londoners that he doesn't think Electromotive's going anywhere and plans to remain in the community. According to Mayor Joe, Electromotive reps told him so directly, quote, I did not get the impression that Caterpillar wanted to move out of town, end quote, he said of his two or three meetings with the company's management earlier this year. Now, that was December 16th that he actually made that quote. Now, if that's a fact, Robert, that's got to be a pretty big fact. Because if it is a fact, then all of the talk about the employer leaving town is kind of moot, and there's a, a, a different game being played here, and uh, at least different from the one that we've been told about. On the other hand, Ken Luenza, uh, I heard him on December 19th, also say that he expects the company to pull out of town. That was a pretty blunt statement. Number two. With regard to Caterpillar's choices of where to place its production, the London Free Press reports that, quote, London is struggling with nearly 10% unemployment. Muncie, Indiana has the same sort of high unemployment rate, end quote. So in both communities, there's an available pool of labor currently sitting idle or underemployed. So there's people who could use a job. Number three. As a natural consequence of these high unemployment rates and market rates, Caterpillar, Electromotive wants to cut its wage, wages and benefits by more than 50%, which, of course, is unacceptable to the union, which is step number four. They refuse to accept any cuts in wages or in benefits and have said so. Many times, one of their employees was proudly saying not one cent less and was repeating it over and over again as though they weren't budging, they weren't moving. So the conflict of interest is between the company and the union. And it's about price and nothing else. It's only about price. Price of labor. The price of their labor. But the conflict of interest between the union and under other members of the community who, who may be unemployed or eager to accept a job at $16 an hour is about competition. Competition and labor. And that's what the union does not want. 
Now, number six, because of labor laws that bind a company to a union even after a so-called contract has expired, neither the company nor other employees or the unemployed are permitted to enter into a consensual employer-employee relationship. In this case, freedom of association as we normally understand it has been legally <laughs> replaced by both forced association between the company and union and forced disassociation between the company and willing labor wanting to work for it. The cause of this gross non-capitalist mar market distortion is completely political. And that's caused by government, which is already sitting there in the midst of this all. This is not a capitalist situation. And number seven, the political conflict is about capitalism and its arch enemies and every other ism. The company wants the freedom of association to hire those willing to work for it at a price agreeable to the company. The union wants to block and prevent the company's freedom of association and the freedom of association of all workers willing to work for it on mutually acceptable terms. The union wants the government to get involved, violate the fundamental principle of consent, and maintain the current monopoly status quo on labor. In other words, a closed shop. Plain and simple. There in a nutshell, I think, are the essentials of the entire situation. Do you think, have I missed something? No, I think you've got it right there, but uh, there's also another level of force, and that is within the union itself, anybody who works at Electromotive Diesel is forced by the RAND formula uh, to pony up their union dues, whether they agree with the union sure. or not. Sure, that's all part of the problem, isn't it? Force, force, force. So, I think this is perhaps why we hear almost nothing in terms of statements or positions from the company. Because their position is basically right and just. They don't have very much to have to defend. After all, if they wanted to, they could just close the company and go into an entirely different line of business. Could we stop them? Would it be immoral to do so? Oh, we don't want you to build rocket ships now. We just want you to keep building trains. Huh? Is that the way the economy works? It's their property, their capital, their technology, their management, their risk, their right. And I don't see that they need to justify their position, either economically or morally. So for them, silence is golden. Because if, you've got, if, you're in, if you're in favor of an open market, you can keep your mouth closed. But on the dark side, if you're into a closed shop, you have a closed mind and you have a very open mouth. <laughs> <All right. laughs> and the rationalizations abound. This is what gives it away, is what they say in defense of their own position. This is why I've got my position, because I'm listening to what they're saying. And what really gets my... Oh, I just want to you know, smash the radio every time I hear them talking about the morality and ethics, you know, that they all call it, which I have plenty to say about a little later. They do have one point right, though. It is about greed. Their greed. And this is so glaringly obvious that it stuns the imagination that anyone isn't seeing it and saying it obviously. The proof, again, is in their own arguments. It's in their complete psychological projections of their own motivations and moral shortcomings that they thrust on to everyone else. And they're making complete asses of themselves, if you don't mind me saying so, as they bray to the politicians and the other gods of collectivism, none of whom have any answers, by the way. None even, nobody even has a, has a plausible suggestion. All they can do is act like, like morons in the marketplace. And one of the biggest, I think, you know, if you want to call them that, asses of socialism around is Ontario Federation of Labor President Sid Ryan who having no solutions whatever to put on the table then makes the political call for communism. Quote, we must come together to stop Caterpillar dead in its tracks. This is our year to militantly push back against every greedy employer 
whether public or, or whether private or the public sector, that is attacking good jobs and retirement security. That was out of the London Free Press, January 21st. Another letter writer, Heather Dirks, CAW Local 88 of Sparta, writes in a letter to the editor on January 21st, if Caterpillar is successful, the very fabric of our society will begin to be eroded. Canada is the last great bastion of workers' rights. I urge everyone to immediately cease to purchase anything with Caterpillar's logo, logo on it. <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing. It is funny, isn't it? It's hilarious. It, it, it's absolutely hilarious. And, you know, we hear these un, uh, unending and uncoordinated set of rationalizations. Um, you know, the mayor was out there falsely implying that the federal conservatives had this big stake in electromotive and said nothing about the provincial part or the provincial liberals who really maybe do have a stake in this. It's their jurisdiction, hmm. you know. It's their area. Sure. I understand we have a caller on the line. Let's listen to him. Hello, Scott, are you there? Yes. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, my whole opinion about this is I've been talking with people about this whole Caterpillar thing, and they're, they're like, up in my face because I'm sort of disagreeing with them, and they say, oh, well, what would you do if, you know, your employer cut half of your wage. First of all, I don't belong to a union, and if my employer cut half of my wages, I would just find a second job or another job that paid me what I needed to make. If, if, if they don't like what Caterpillar is doing with their own profits that they own, a private business, then why don't they just find another job if they don't like it? That's exactly right, Scott. That's uh, exactly how the marketplace works. In fact, you know, there was a caller on one of the open line shows I listened to who put it very plainly. He said, he gave an example. He said, suppose you live in a house and on each side you have an electrician living on each side of your house and you need an electrician. One of them is asking 50 bucks an hour and the other one is asking $100 an hour and yet they're both equivalent, you know, talent-wise the same. Which one would you pick? <laughs> no-brainer. Right? It's a no-brainer. And yet... They want to throw the brain out of this whole situation as though the profits of Caterpillar have anything to do with this at all, uh, which is an, an entirely separate situation. And, of course, uh, basically it's all a rationalization to keep their labor monopoly. And now, of course, this week Caterpillar announced its profit statement. It was a great profit statement. They're doing great stuff. Sounds like they're going to be putting a lot of this money into the investments, which is what you need. You need a company that makes a lot of profit to be, even be able to build machines like this. And for all we know, their new strategy might well be to build spaceships and rocket ships. Who knows what they might be well, getting into. Well, if Newt Gingrich gets in down south. <laughs> well, that's right. They might. So, um, you know, Sid Ryan was saying, too, on January 20th, he was saying that the issues at play here, people are shocked at the concessions demanded from the very profitable Caterpillar. But, you know, profits never bothered unions before. Even when co companies were losing money, they were still saying the same things. It was the same argument, the same record plan. Uh, the profit is just something that they change their minds on, however it changes from company to company. And to demonstrate that there's broad support for these workers at the political level, he says, if we let this go without some kind of massive pushback, we'll see this kind of agenda appearing at the bargaining tables, private and public. The agenda he's referring to is market prices. He doesn't want to see market prices out there. He doesn't want to see a free, free flow of market, market prices. And then he said, and this is a great quote, Caterpillar is our poster child for corporate greed. Workers are fed up with this kind of agenda, he said. When you've got foreign investors coming in to take over key Canadian industries, make commitments to keep employees, and then renege on the agreement, 
They get taxpayer concessions and then they renege on the agreement. The federal government should protect workers through the Canada Investment Act. So now he wants to control investment and basically start a communist country. <laughs> I think that's basically their agenda. And he says the same debate is taking place in the, in the UK. And he thinks that, you know, corporations are in the business of helping society out. And that's not what they're there for. Then he started discussing future plans of how he's going to disrupt the corporation and its operations to try to hurt the shareholders. Not a guy you'd want to have working for you. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you. He should have put that on uh, when, he, when he lined up for his uh, job interview. Yes, I'm going to absolutely destroy you if you do anything <laughs> to me. You know? And of course, we can always count on Bob Ray joining in on the fray. And he, can't, he was talking on January 20th, heard him on one of the radio stations. He says, well, this is an unusual situation. It's unusual because we have a company that's profitable. And he kept repeating the, the Canadian government gave them a grant, which I have not heard of any such grant. But Bob Ray kept repeating that they got a grant. And he says they demand such level of concessions from the workers. It seems an odd line of approach by the company. Well, wait a minute, what's so odd about it? Next door, you can get labor at half the price. On this side, you get labor at twice, twice the price. He thinks that's odd. <laughs> what kind of mind would think that that was odd? Well, not only that, uh, they have a profit. How do you think they got their profit? Perhaps it's those companies out there who aren't turning a profit because they're giving in to the union exactly. demands all the time. Exactly. That's why they're failing. And, you know, this is why I say they're drowning in their own greed. It's literally what happens. And I've seen it over and over and over again. So, uh, you know, just to, to let's stress that point now. So we, we're going to take a break right now. And I have to point out, we last aired uh, a selection from the following April 21st, 1999 CTS-TV broadcast on Just Right back in 2009. If you want to check it out, it's Just Right number 107, June 11th. So if you want to hear even more of what we're about to listen to now, you can check it out again, as, as I say, at www.justrightmedia.org. But what you're about to hear is yours truly in conversation, if we can call it that, with Sid Ryan on a show hosted by the late Rhonda London on her afternoon live-to-air TV talk show called Rhonda London Live. And we'll be back. After this. Today we're talking about unions. Do they still have relevancy in the 1990s? I'm joined by Sid Ryan of CUPE and Robert Metz from the Freedom Party of Ontario. Now, Sid, I feel like almost as if I've been on both sides of the equation because I can remember now I wasn't around, but I can, from the stories that have been passed down from my grandfather, the days when there was no organized labor, and he used to work on the loading docks in St. John, New Brunswick, and, you know, he'd have to get up in the middle of the night, go out middle of winter, freezing cold, and maybe there was only an hour of work and he'd be sent home, and he had a family to support. It was horrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was inhuman what went on. But on the other side of the equation, I see some of the unions, particularly in the television industry, where you think they're more dedicated to promoting mediocrity than promoting excellence. Well, you know, that goes to the argument, um, have unions outlived their usefulness, mm -hmm. and in today's society, do we need unions? Um, I would put it to you that if we had no unions today, it wouldn't be very long before we slip back into an environment um, that your grandfather had to work within. So, so there's an awful lot still to be said for, for unions. We do keep um, employers honest. We do keep the wages up for everybody else. So, as, so as minimum wages will always have to be raised in order to keep up with the, in the wage settlements that unions negotiate. So I, I can never see a time when unions Are unions, unions keeping useful. pace, though, with the, the fast pace of change in the 1990s? Um, oh, I think so. I'll well, give you an example. Take the, uh, the Canadian auto workers. 
there's a real high-tech industry um, where they pay their workers $22, $23 per hour to work on the lines. But they had about 30,000 members in, the, in that industry, and let's say in the Oshawa plant, only 15 years ago. Today, it's, it's less than 20,000. Um, they've got the best kind of a, the best product in, in, in GM. It's the most profitable plants that they've got. Um, the quality uh, of the of the vehicles coming off the lines, they say themselves, is, is beyond uh, cannot be matched anywhere in the GM uh, empire. So. Are we keeping pace? Sure we are. We're willing to work with technology, we're willing to work with employers, and at the same time we want to be able to share in the profits and have a decent wage for our people who work in those plants. I think if you want to share in the profits, you should sign a contract that gives you a portion of those profits and that if there are losses, you share in the losses as well. You know, wages are sort of a guaranteed profit whether the company makes a profit or not. They have to be paid. So it places the employee in a totally different situation than an employer. It's the employer who takes the risk, the employer who makes the investment. Um, you, you talked about the benevolence of employers, you know, like if we took away all the unions, their, their benevolence would keep the wages high. Wages are not affected by, by benevolence or the lack of it. They're affected simply by supply and demand. And if there are a lot of people out there who are willing to work for less, that's where the problem is. It's not, it's not in the laws and the social system. It's in the fact we have so many unemployed people and people who need jobs or who are willing to, to move up from their job to a job that might pay no, half as much as a union. That, that, no, that argument is nonsense. This one about, about supply and demand. Take, well, take, let's take a look at, at uh, where most of the people work in this province. They work a lot, I wouldn't say most, an awful lot of them work in the public sector. How does the law of supply and demand, for instance, come into play in doesn't the health care system? Where does it come into play in the delivery, delivery of social programs, children's aid societies, um, social programs with children with disabilities? That, that's nonsense. This well, question about supply and demand just simply does not operate. You think a plant like General well, Motors... It, no, it should not. So, so okay, well, there, there's it's, the it's issue. It's got no place for it whatsoever. Uh, uh, so you're saying that... Uh, that prices should be determined by something other than the real marketplace out there, by some arbitrary no, union see, whim. No, it's, uh, you know, so you what you're talking you, about, sorry, is you, you're talking about... You can't legislate prices, let's no, put it that way. But you, yeah, you want to bring it back to prices. Well, I want to bring, I, I bring well, it back to... Well, that's what the wages are. No, wages I bring it back are the to, price of labor. No, it's not. It's, like, it's, it's about the kind of society that you want to live in. Well, I want um, to live in a free society you, Yeah, you want to live in a choose, society like the American society, but I don't want that. I don't want all the crime that comes with this market-driven economy that you profess all the time. There's a lot of phone calls. Sure. We have so many phone calls. Let's jump in. Paul is standing by very patiently on Line 7. Go ahead, Paul. You're on the air. Yeah, hi there. How are you doing? I've been listening with interest to your conversation this afternoon. And I'm, I'm always, I guess I'm always one who's uh, struck by, by puns and, and ironic titles and such. And uh, on that note, I'd just like to point out that Mr. Metz, uh, representing some freedom party, uh, certainly seems to be representing to me an extremely false notion of freedom. I think he really is talking about the freedom to enslave, the freedom to reduce the subjectivity, if you like, of human labor to some kind of objective purchased item. I think he's kind of devoid of the notion of the person as a fundamental good with fundamental rights and dignities that really must be respected and uh, acknowledged by law. Um, the fact that as to the necessity of unions, your, your key question, they're absolutely fundamental, really, in, in, in the face of the type of arguments that Mr. Metz is delivering to us. Uh, that's essentially all I have to say. This, this drive for uh, better price, 
uh, so-called value and uh, and ec- economistic thinking and reduction of this notion of human labor to this other commodity item is exactly why unions uh, are necessary to protect the dignity of human uh, human work and experience. The dignity of human wor- work and d- the dignity of human being comes from being able to to have freedom of choice and have freedom in a society and accept the responsibility for those things. I don't think that there's anything that I've said that that would take that away. I'm saying that uh, any kind of a labor, or, or rather an employee-employer relationship, should be voluntary on both parts. Uh, both part that both parties to that agreement should be able to say no and walk away from the table but and not have to do anything. But is it not voluntary though? Because management, union representatives get together every two or three years to the life of the contract, and they hammer out a deal. And of course, that conversation went on and on. You can hear more of it again, as I say, on our website. You know, that next question that Rhonda was just about to ask about isn't it voluntary when management and labor reps meet to negotiate a contract? Well, it might be during the term of the contract, but when the contract's over, is it still? I don't think so. You know, if it was voluntary, they'd be both coming to the table voluntarily, <laughs> right? And, of course, uh, yes, I know I stand for the freedom to enslave and all <laughs> such things. Uh, you know, it's amazing how... The labor movement doesn't want labor to be regarded as what it is. It's a service. It's an, it is an objective thing. Not the person who gives the labor. One person can, can labor in an infinite number of different ways. And one form of labor may be worthless in the market, marketplace, and another may be so valuable he, he hasn't thought of doing it yet because he's working at Electromotive getting overpaid. Hmm. <laughs> right? And that's a factor. Um, nevertheless, you know, what is actually behind this? You know, all of these arguments we hear from the unions, to the uninitiated and people who have just been born recently, if you want to put it that way, it all sounds new. But all of these arguments have been used for centuries and centuries and centuries. And the same people fall for them over and over again. One of the great people in the past who, who pointed this out was Frederick Bastiat. The, the, the French economist and statesman, was he middle 1700s, I think? Yes. Yeah. And um, he wrote a book, several books. One was to uh, socialists in all parties he, he dedicated it to. And he, he had a great quote, he says, and this is from Economic Sophisms. And sophistry, by the way, is what we are hearing in this whole debate. It's all sophistry. And he says, plunder always carries within itself the germ that ultimately kills it. Kind of my way of saying, you know, you're preoccupied with greed, you're going to drown in that greed. Okay, so we had this occupation in London's Victoria Park this past Saturday, January 21st. Also, was the site of our last occupation. Now, let's look at all the similarities here. From the outset, this, I think this was a hopeless cause, what they were trying to do, other than drumming up their support. But in terms of results, it was a hopeless cause, just like the last occupation. The event was organized and supported by the usual gang of bullies and thugs from the Ontario Federation of Labor and the Canadian Auto Workers, more or less just like the last occupation. The main villain was corporate greed, just like the last occupation. Or it was about anything you wanted it to be about, just like the last (laughs) occupation. (laughs) Like, quote, it's about helping families. Quote, it's about protecting the right to collective bargaining. Quote, it's about protecting the middle class. Quote, it's about corporate greed. Quote, it's about the very nature of Canada. And of course, according to Sid Ryan, it's not even about Electromotive anymore since the company's now merely, quote, the symbol for corporate greed. 
And here's one of my favorites. It's about the community pulling together to show its support, <laughs> end quote. The community. Which community was that by? Right. Well, not this community, that's for sure. It's the community of socialists, communists, unionists, and other collectivists from as far north as Ottawa and as far south as, as electromotive plant in the States. Um, you know, that community, <laughs> according to the London Free Press, the community was made up of some London city workers, some <laughs> CAW union members from Windsor, Toronto, Chatham-Kent, Sudbury, United Electrical Union members from General Electric's Erie, Pennsylvania locomotive plant, some retired workers from the Oxford Street plant, Ontario Federation of Labour Union members from across the province of Ontario, United Auto Worker Union members from Detroit, residents of London, Woodstock and Stratford, all on buses, and of course the politicians like Bob Ray. So, the community, the local community, right. you know. The commune, probably. Yeah. And, of course, like Joe Fontana. So, why the crowd? Well, here's a reason. They say an attack on one is an attack on all. And I'm thinking, attack? <laughs> attack? Did I miss something? And, uh, you know, hey, you guys, you know, like that, that WW2 tank in the park really doesn't work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see any other weapons in the area, so, so where's the attack? Oh, I see. Of course, the attack was a job offer. Attack me, please. (laughs) (laughs) Job offers are attacks. Frederick Bastiat and Ludwig von Mises talked about the militaristic language that unions use and all statists use when they talk about economies and things they don't want to happen. For example, when goods come over the border, you know, they're flooding over, they're flooding in, they're, they're drowning us, you know, and we're in trouble. But... This kind of militaristic language is indicative of, I think, the course of mindset from which it originates. It's also centuries old, as I say, and it's been used successfully because no one ever learns from history. You can manipulate workers into economically immolating themselves in the name of union power, which is why they do a lot of chanting and marching and protesting. It's the modern version of howling at the moon and cursing at the gods who have been so unkind to those who refuse to obey the principles of economic and moral reality. Now, the real objective is a labor monopoly that excludes the right of competing workers to apply for a job in a union's closed shop. I mean, that's what it's always been about. The real enemy is not corporate greed, but workers need. A union's greatest enemy is competing labor, whether it's foreign, domestic, or even in the same shop. Pure coercive monopoly from top to bottom. It's, it's, that's what's immoral. That's what should be illegal. I've worked in a union shop, and I remember when I'd be finished my job and I wanted to clean up around my area where I was working, they would stop me. Mm-hmm. Well, that's somebody else's job. Somebody else has to clean up. And then somebody else could hold me up for up to an hour and then put me behind on my production. That's how they'd get even with you if they didn't like you. It's all politics. So eventually, you know, if you, unless you can stand that over and over and over again, who wants to work in a situation like that? Bastiat describes the process of any monopoly thusly, and this is a great description. Quote, Monopoly's distinguishing characteristic is to permit the continued existence of the great law of society, service for service, but to introduce force into the negotiations, and consequently to upset the just balance between service received and service rendered. End quote. Now, that's, this is a form of plunder, explains Bastiat, which actually is a system of plunder, which is doomed to its own self-destruction thanks to what is essentially the law of causality. Quote, a providential law whose operation is, in the end, fatal to, th- to the success of every system of plunder. Plunder not only redistributes wealth, it always, at the same time, 
destroys wealth. This is an admirable law, for without it, provided that there were a balance of power between oppressor and oppressed, plunder would have no end. So, he says, you know, in fact, there comes a time when the progressively accelerating destruction of wealth goes so far that the plunderer is poorer than he would have been if he had remained honest in the first place. So, you can see the situation that we're heading into there. We're at the bottom of the hour. Time to take another break. And on the other side of this break, coming back, we'll hear another conversation, again featuring yours truly, uh, with uh, Gil Warren local labor member and representative here. Um, this was from, let me see, what's the year? 2001, September 26, off of Rogers Cable TV, uh, the Jim Chapman live show. But that'll be on the other side of the break when we return after this. Thank you, Mr. Pike. You've made that point, I think. Now I'm going to call on Mr. Windrush, who is a worker at missiles, might perhaps be described as the odd man in. And now, Mr. Windrush, what have you got to say? I'm going to find it pretty difficult to say what I want to say in a few words. In fact, I'm only now just beginning to catch on. As my friend Knowles, he would have said, I must have been dead stupid. I've swallowed everything they've given me to swallow. Everything. All the phony, patriotic, claptrap of the employers. All the bills I've heard talk about workers right into my heads, reeling with the stink of it all. Trouble is, everybody's got so used to the smell, they no longer notice it. Furthermore, they're deaf, too. So deaf, they can't even hear the fiddles. In fact, they don't want to. Wherever you look, it's a case of, blow you, Jack, I'm all right. On the point of order, Mr. Chairman. No, oh, I might have known you'd have a point of order. Hey, this is going to be a beaut. This meeting has got to follow the rules of proper procedure. Oh, shut up, Frank. They all know your proper procedure. Hang a chap without giving him a hearing. Is that what they do in the Soviet Union, eh, Katie? I protest, sir. My politics is a matter between my conscience and the better of politics. To each according to his needs. From each as little as he can get away with. And no overtime, except on Sundays at double the rate. That's a damn fine way to build a new Jerusalem. Mr. Chairman, I do think that we all ought to try and deal with each other fairly. Don't you fall for that soft soap, Mr. Muggeridge. When a deal's fair for Uncle Bertie, you can bet your life it's a wet and windy one for the rest of us. Gentlemen, please. What we want to get at are the facts. The facts? I've got the facts over here. Here they are. Hundreds of them. These are the only that interest anybody in this dispute. This is what they all want. This is all they want. Something for nothing. Thinking for the last how many years? Two, well, three, four, five years. Personally, I think the best thing that the worker, unionized and non-unionized, would would have in his favor is lower taxes right across the board. Lower taxes can do the same thing that Gill suggests lower interest rates can do, and that's putting more money in the pockets of the consumer so they can spend. The important thing is to keep money in the pockets of the producer, the person who is investing in the capital that makes labor productive in the in the marketplace What's so wrong they with can that? actually compete. What's wrong with that? I think, I think that what we have to look at, rather than lowering taxes to stimulate the economy, 
is the lower interest rates, number one. Number two, having more money flow to, to workers rather than to the wealthy and to get money into the pockets. What do you think lower taxes is? That's it, lower taxes for the wealthy by and large, and that's well. the problem. But if you had money in the pockets of workers, they are going to spend it on basics like well, housing say, and education. Let's say for the are, let's sake of argument, though, that, 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 that it is lower taxes for workers. What's wrong with that? But I think that, that... Can't we do that? We could do that to some extent, all right? But I, I don't think that, that it's an efficient way to stimulate the economy. Like I, I think that we're, we're going now into what looks like a serious recession, although it's hard to say. You wouldn't rather but we, have more money in your own pocket, though? I would rather have the government, for instance, building social housing. That's what I think needs to be done. Rather than the private market building social private housing. Private market, market is not going to build social well, housing. Uh, this well, is interesting to me. We talked about social housing last night, but this is interesting to me because you're talking about organized workers, most of whom don't need don't need uh, uh, subsidized housing. What, what, Ooh, what I disagree there. You, you know, you have the image that every worker is a, is, is a middle-class person who makes $20 an hour. There's a lot of workers who are organized in unions who are making the, the, the average industrial wage is like $12 or $13. Many people are making $7 or $8 an hour. The, not all workers are middle-class. Many are, are, are relatively poor. Well, if the idea is for the workers of the world to unite, why don't the wealthy workers help the poor workers and leave the rest of the why taxpayers bring, out of it? Why don't we bring the poor workers up to the middle-class Workers. Who's going to pay for it? I would argue that, yeah, that who is going to pay for it? That if we have that a redistribution of wealth, and so that there's there's less money by whom, from whom, to whom, less money in the hands of the super capitalists and more money in the hands of average people. How are you going to do that? That the whole economy would benefit. Like who who's going to get? Well, we've we've seen evidence that I was getting nervous about this, you know, because I make more money now than I used to make, and I, I don't yeah. I don't know if I'm a rich guy yet or not. Now you're probably I'm still middle class. I'm worried about you putting, <laughs> you're putting your hand in my pocket here. How deep is it going to go? It's not his hand, it's the fist of socialism. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, just the constant preoccupation with other people's money. It just, it's almost embarrassing. And you hear it over and over again. You think it has gone away after 10, 20 years. No, they're saying the same things in the park this past weekend that they said 10 years ago, they said 20 years ago. And maybe they're saying the same thing about me too, because I'm saying the same things too. You know... In the real world, which is not the one we currently live in, <laughs> all the employees who said no thanks to Electromotive's offer would have already gone on their own way, maybe already been employed somewhere else, while the many, many other workers who would have been overjoyed to say thanks to Electromotive's offer would already have been gainfully employed by the company. They'd probably be kicking away and all the extra jobs and everything would be going on hunky-dory. Has anyone clued in to the ultimate irony of all this? And I think it's this, and it's that unions are drowning in their own greed. Greed is what they are really about. Not merely self-interest or selfishness, mind you, but outright greed focused on the wealth of others and acquired by non-consensual means. That is what greed is. That's how I define it. Having the right to keep what you earned selfishly is not greed. That's just ownership. <laughs> you know, Wanting or feeling entitled to someone else's wealth simply because it exists is greed. And that's what we're hearing. Today they're celebrating their greed. Yay, the company has made money, so we should have some of it. Well, you already got your deal. You already got your share. What's your problem? You know, they wouldn't be complaining if the company would, was losing money, would they? Yes, oh, and so the company yeah. comes to them and says, well, we're, we're yeah. showing a loss, so we're going to have to take your money out of your pockets now. Exactly. So, uh, to me, anyone who advocates such actions is, is a bully and thug, you know. And the fact that their acts have been legalized by another gang of thugs, collectivist politicians, doesn't negate the immorality of their actions, nor the unavoidable consequences that follow. 
And it's from those direct consequences of their actions that unions want to be protected. And so, you know, and meanwhile, there's a whole other, a whole other conversation building up on the side. The moralists are coming out now. We have one uh, in the local paper here, London Free Press. His name is Goldwyn Emerson, who, whom I've criticized before. He's in the Christian spiritual section writing outrageously anti-moral sentiments with stuff like this uh, under the heading EMD dispute demands more of government. They're always calling for more government. <laughs> what Christian would call for more government? Did they not remember what the government did to a guy named Jesus Christ? <laughs> you know? Well, they'll do that to you too. But quote, here's what he wrote. Some observers believe the proper business of employers is to maximize profits, keep customers satisfied, and maintain happy shareholders. Further, they argue it is not the business of the company to concern itself with unemployment or to listen to stories of financial hardship resulting from the company's maximization of profits. Imagine that hardships resulting from profit. Ever heard of such a thing? It is reasoned the CEO of the most successful companies deserves a generous salary, often up to 200 times of the average worker, he writes. For many companies, ethical justice, equality, and workers' needs are not of concern. In the late 1950s, American psychologist Lawrence Kohlberg developed a six-point scale of moral maturity. On it, the lowest moral level consists only of caring for one's own interests and needs. Could he be referring to the unions? No, <laughs> no of course he's not. Of course he's not. And he says, of course, not all companies operate on this level. This raises the question of the role of our political leaders. Huh? That's a complete non sequitur. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. But it doesn't, and it doesn't raise that issue at all. But he writes, the present response of governing politicians has been the laissez-faire statement that the situation is simply a matter of the CAW and Caterpillar working out details without involvement or even interest on the government's part. End quote. Well, that's, not, that's completely false. The current situation is a consequence of past government involvement in the free market. Then he writes, in general terms, we cherish our free enterprise and democratic form of government. Well, you know, I'd like to believe that, Robert, but I don't think even that's true. And I, don't, I think it couldn't, nothing could be further from the truth, and that's part of the problem. We cherish security by government. That's the defining thing of Canadians, and that's going now, and they don't like the, they don't like reality coming to knock on the door. It's probably why they don't like people who talk about reality either, because reality is coming to visit. Quote, he says, yet this system does not work well in the current economic downturn, end quote. And, you know, this is either downright ignorance talking or an outright lie. What system works better? Name me one. You know, cowards like this have never had the courage to tell us. They just say, we need more government, we need more laws, we need more regulations. It's called communism, it's called socialism, it's, it's anything but capitalism, right? And from there, the real downturn is the whole intent of this truly, I think, despicable article. It's right out of Atlas Shrugged. I, I could think of no dictator, con artist, thief, thug, communist, socialist, unionist who would disagree with Mr. Emerson. They'd all agree. It's monstrous what he's suggesting. Then we have... London Fanshawe's Irene Matheson. She's on the air the other day saying, Caterpillar has no ethics. How can you go on in public and say stuff like that? They have the money. Oh, that explains it. They have no ethics because they have the money. That told me a lot about her ethics. Everything I need to know about Ms. Matheson. And then she began to recite her terms for the rights of business people in Canada to have any degree of freedom at all. And it was very clear from her statement and the statements of many people supporting the locked-out workers that if the company were going bankrupt or was losing money, 
that only then would it be considered ethical. <laughs> you know? Quote, if a company receives a tax break, she explains, and that includes our health care and education system, end quote, then that company has a never-ending list of obligations it owes to society, according to her. She calls this corporate responsibility, blah, 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 blather. It's on Atlas Shrugged, page 1,128. You can read it all about it there. <laughs> I kid you. It's right out of the book. I'm not kidding you. And, and, and what grand question, you know, do you suppose she was challenged with? And this was on the Jeff MacArthur show. He says, well, is it unethical or is it just capitalism? As if somehow capitalism looks unethical, right? It's coming from a so-called conservative. This is why the conservatives can't do much for capitalism either. Where do all these morally inverted ideas come from? Well, they come from the people who have something to gain by it, at the expense of others. That's who's writing the story, right? Meanwhile, socialism itself is unethical, both in theory and in practice. The people on the so-called side of the unions have no idea whatever what, you know, what governments should do. Every time they're asked this question by talk show hosts, interviewers, etc., they never have a coherent response. The government should just well, do something. You know, they're all hopelessly chanting, get the government here. And what should they do? Well, they should do something. What? Well, they should do something. You know, and you can see the blank out. That's also a term from Ayn right? <laughs> You know, one poor chanter in the park who called into an open line show suggested that Electromotive should just be, quote, taken over and be run by and for Canadians only, since this would be a protection for his job, he thought in his mind. <laughs> Obviously, he never thought that one through. The locomotives made in these factories are sold around the world and are totally dependent on that market, as are Electromotive jobs. If you only build them for Canadians, you're going to have to lay off 90% of your factory. Duh. So they want the door open on one side, but not on the other. And, you know, it all comes down to wanting your cake and having it too, doesn't it, Robert? Yeah. And that's what the unions are all about. And that's where we're going to leave this subject for today, because I'm sure there will be so much more to say on this uh, as the situation progresses. We'll be back right after this break. Oh. Uh, Mr. Uh, no, Mr. Brooks had to cancel the meeting. Oh. My name's Ron Watson. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad you could get here instead, anyway. Uh, you sit down, won't you? Oh, thank you. Now, Mr... Um, uh, Watson. Mr. Watson, before we start, there's one thing I must make absolutely clear. This must not get out. If the unions were to get to hear of this, <laughs> all hell would be let loose. Oh, yes. Of course, there'll be redundancies. You simply... You simply can't <laughs> slim down a giant bureaucracy like this without getting rid of people. Ultimately, a lot of people. Won't you be holding discussions with the unions first? We'll go through the charade of discussions. <laughs> but you know what trade unions are like. Thick as two short planks and bloody-minded. <laughs> All of them? <laughs> Pretty well. Good Lord, you should know. All they're interested in is poaching each other's members and getting themselves on the telly. And they can't keep their big mouths shut. What about uh, drivers and transport service staff? First to go. Good God. We waste a fortune on cars and drivers and they're all on the fiddle. <laughs> because as I was trying to explain, I'm not Mr. Brough's deputy. I'm the General Secretary of the Union of Civil Service Transport and Associated Government Work. <laughs> Oh, I, I, and I came here to check there was no truth in the rumour of redundancies for my members. Well, I... I, 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 just, I didn't... 
Oh, I'm in. So you don't know them? No, I don't know them. Interesting. That man claims just the opposite. He says he was with you at the time the crime was committed. Well, I'm afraid that is impossible. How do you know? I haven't told you what time the crime was committed. Point well taken. What time was the crime committed? Last night, between 1 and 1.30. <laughs> it just so happens at that hour I was in my hotel making love to my wife. I know this for a fact because her screams of ecstasy woke up the entire neighborhood. <laughs> Somebody actually shouted out, it's between 1 and 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> Give the poor woman a break. <laughs> and so I did. I did. You wish to stand by that story? Oh, yes. It's, it's, it's a good story. Very well. I plan to investigate every detail. I will hold your passport for another 48 hours. You can keep it. I have lots. I have lots, says John Candy in <laughs> Once Upon a Crime. Lots of passports. And that brings us to our next topic this hour, and that is dual citizenship. Now, there's been a recent controversy surrounding the dual citizenship held by federal NDP leadership hopeful Thomas Mulcair. And it's thought that to be the leader of a federal party, which one day, hopefully not in my life, could propel said leader to the Prime Minister's office, one should renounce all other citizenships. And I would agree, but I'd go further. But before I do, let's put dual or multiple citizenship in a historical perspective. Mr. Mulcair would not be the first federal leader to have dual citizenship. Prime Minister John Turner had Canadian and British citizenship. And of course, before 1947, there was no such thing as having Canadian citizenship per se. We were all British citizens. From 47 to the early 80s, all Canadians had dual Canadian-British citizenship. Don't know how many people forget that. And after that, we achieved the singular Canadian citizenship, dropping the British in citizenship, but also accepting the fact that Canadians can possess multiple citizenships. Now, most countries, including the U.S., accepts the fact that a citizen can simultaneously be a citizen of another country. It's a fact. It's interesting historically to know that 10 U.S. presidents were also British subjects, eight, of course, being born into the British North American colonies, but two were British after independence, Chester Arthur and Barack Obama. Obama was British and then Kenyan by, uh, is it Kenyan or Kenyan? I forget. By Kenyan, by virtue of his father who was born into Kenya, which was a British colony at the time. But Obama lost his citizenship from Kenya when he turned 23, as Kenya law prohibits dual citizenship for adults. Hmm, interesting. Now, hmm, let's leave citizenship by descent and by birth aside and talk about oaths of allegiance, which is, to me, more interesting here, or oaths of citizenship. Being born here... Most of us did not have to take an oath declaring our allegiance to the Queen of Canada. But to become a naturalized citizen, or to enlist in our military, or even to become a member of Parliament, 
one must take an oath swearing loyalty to the Queen, the Queen of Canada. And the oath of citizenship reads as follows. I swear, or affirm, that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada, her heirs and successors, and that I will faithfully observe the laws of Canada and fulfill my duties as a Canadian citizenship, or Canadian citizen, rather. Now, I say that anyone taking this oath gives up immediately any allegiance to any other nation or leader of any other nation. It would be a blatant division of loyalty to swear allegiance to the Queen of Canada and also have, for an example, an allegiance to the Republic of the United States of America, or in Mr. Mulcair's situation, to that of France. It yes, would be it's a not contradiction. about them being friendly with each other or anything either. It's a complete separate identities. That's the issue, isn't it? Separate identities, allegiances, loyalties. Mm -hmm. There's a division. There's a, a schizophrenia involved here, I think. It'll be a lie to take such an oath and to maintain your citizenship with another country. To not renounce that citizenship would make a mockery of the oath one just swore to become a Canadian citizen or to enlist in our military or to be a member of Parliament, as in Mr. Mulcair's case. It would be like having two spouses. spouses. It's a form of citizenship polygamy. Now, upon taking this oath, I'd suggest that anyone possessing prior citizenship publicly renounce the same and hand over any passports to that country. Not to do so would mean that the oath was simply a formality and you really didn't mean it. Further, I would suggest that any Canadian citizen, we're Canadian by birth or blood, who actively seeks the citizenship of another nation and in doing so swears an oath to that nation, must lose his Canadian citizenship and relinquish his Canadian passport. Allegiances can't be divided. You either swear allegiance to one country or another. You can't have it both ways. It's not divisible, allegiance. It was not that long ago that Michel Jean was sworn in as governor general. Two days before that swearing in, which made her commander-in-chief, by the way, of the Canadian Armed Forces, she renounced her French citizenship. This was the right thing to do, and I think she set an example for anyone wishing to actively participate in elected federal politics and our military. You know, interestingly, France prohibits its citizens from participating in any foreign military or government, but in Michel Jean's case, the French embassy in Ottawa assured her that they would make an exception for her. And why not? To have a French citizen as commander-in-chief of the Canadian forces would have been a quite the bloodless coup. <laughs> <laughs> Besides being deceitful, dual citizenship, if by choice, has been, and I say that because a lot of people have dual citizenship, not by choice. Naturalized. But, or... No, no, not naturalized. Actually, naturalization is choice. To be naturalized is to come to Canada and to seek citizenship. That's what the naturalization process is. Uh, by birth... Um, in other words, you're born here, you have it. But, but also, and a lot of people don't realize this, by descent. If your parents are from another country, you may be, according to that country, a citizen of that country. You may not even know that, but it's true in many cases. So besides being deceitful, dual citizenship, as I said before, if by choice, has been a major financial burden on Canada, as many take advantage of the socialist programs Canada has to offer and become citizens of convenience. 
Often this scheme involves fraud, as in the case of hundreds of Lebanese Canadians who received permanent resident status without having left their home country. This one case centered around a man, uh, Ahmed El-Akal, who from Montreal, I believe, who obtained citizenship for hundreds of Middle Easterns and at the same time received hundreds of thousands of dollars from the federal government in the form of benefits and tax refunds. Now, such scams could be eliminated by requiring those undergoing naturalized residency requirements to report to Canadian officials on a regular basis and to provide evidence of the rev- residency. We have to toughen this law up. Relinquishing their foreign passports upon taking the oath of citizenship would also dramatically reduce these con artists who only want Canadian citizenship as a means of having a safe haven should things turn sour in their homelands. Much as it did, uh, remember this, Bob, in uh, July of 2006, when Canada evacuated thousands of uh, Canadian citizens from Lebanon, Mm -hmm. it cost us $85 million dollars. Now, while to be sure some of these citizens were only in Lebanon on holiday, which is quite, you know, legitimate, most were permanent residents there and were using their Canadian citizenship to get away from the fighting between the Hezbollah and Israel. A sort of get-out-of-hell-free card, if you will. You know, an oath once meant something. It meant a person's honor was on the line should the oath be broken. It shouldn't come as much as a surprise that today such a thing as swearing an oath has become a simple formality to be performed and then forgotten. Or worse, to be performed and laughed at as the one taking the oath knows full well that he has no intention of keeping his pledge or of fealty to the queen and country. To break an oath of allegiance to a country should be considered the same as breaking a contract. And if a naturalized citizen, one who by choice chose to be Canadian, becomes a member of our military, a member of parliament, or any other, uh, or any other who has taken such an oath, be found to be working for another country's government or against Canada by breaking its laws, which is a part of the oath, then the proper course of action for the government, I would say, would be to rescind their citizenship. That's that's what I think about dual citizenship, Bob. It is a schizophrenic, non-possible um, reality. I, I also there's other considerations too. Voting considerations that come along with citizenship. Can people vote in two countries? And that kind of issue. But we'll have to leave it there because our time is up this week. We're getting the signal and we've got to go. Join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, we'll see you then. Take me there. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright You know what the secret to life is? It's just learning how to appreciate all the little things Midgets (laughs) Next time you're walking down the street You see a midget Pick him up, give him a little hug (laughs) They'll put up a little fight, you know Little legs kicking in the air there get to work. Somebody got to make those delicious cookies. <laughs> they do. They make delicious cookies, the midgets. They have limited job options, you know. Either they work for Keebler or you shoot them out of a cannon. It's okay. You can laugh. No midgets come out to the comedy clubs anyway. <laughs> 
Maybe they have their own club. You know, we just can't see it. <laughs>